Okay, so um, Eric Auerbach, he wrote uh, a book called Mimesis at the first part of last century, 20th century, or middle portion anyway. Um, and it's really, it's this amazing work on a sort of a sweep, a survey of the Western canon of literature. And he starts with Homer, and he moves all the way up into present day at his time, 20th century literature. And um, he talks in the first chapter, I believe it's called Odysseus's Scar, but he compares, among other things, he compares um, the work of Homer, and in particular, uh, the Odyssey, um, and the person of Odysseus, variously called Ulysses, the protagonist in that book. He compares Ulysses, for instance, and Homer's characters to the biblical Old Testament characters. And one of the salient points that he makes is this. He says, I mean, obviously, the Odyssey is a masterwork by the, the master poet of Greece. But his characters, Homer's characters, Odysseus, Ulysses, for instance, they're two-dimensional. So they don't change. So, and it's probably worth reading just this short passage. He says this. He says, Odysseus, on his return home, if you've read the book, he He's, he's away from in battle, and then on this odyssey is where we get the word from, uh, for decades from his family. Odysseus on his return is exactly the same as he was when he left Ithaca two decades earlier. But what a road, what a fate, lie between the Jacob who cheated his father out of his blessing and the old man whose favorite son had been torn to pieces by a wild beast. Between David and the harp player, persecuted by his lord's jealousy, and the old king David, Surrounded by violent intrigues, whom Abishag the Shunammite warmed in his bed, and he knew her not. So you have this, you have this, in, a, in, in this masterwork by Homer, you have these characters, but they're two-dimensional, they're flat, they don't change. Odysseus the crafty is always Odysseus the crafty, he doesn't change. But we see these characters, Jacob, David, Abraham, Moses, we see them as the text gives us their lives over the course of decades, that we see them change. And what I want to focus on today, next week is really looking at God with Moses, but this week I want to look at what Moses is looking at God, what Moses' being with God does to him and the way that it changes him. Um, we really see a huge difference when we look at Moses, and this passage in particular connects us back to Moses' encounter with God on the same mountain in Exodus chapter 3, at the beginning of the book, with the burning bush. The Moses there and the Moses here, they're the same person, but Moses has changed a great deal. And I just want to say that the thing that changed Moses and saved Israel, eventually, and the world, because Moses, in his pleadings with God, saved Israel, is the only thing that can change you and me. And that is a sustained encounter with the living God. So a bit of context, a very short bit of context, before we jump into this passage, that's, that Scott read for us, um, is that we find Moses and Israel here on the heels of an, a huge, unmitigated disaster. Because what has just happened is that God has brought with a mighty arm his people, his only people to whom he's pledged himself, out of slavery, out of bondage, out of the iron furnace, through an ocean on dry land. And given them this perfect law to bless them, to make them a people, to live by, and they have gone, before Moses could even bring the law down the mountain, they've gone and made an idol. 
for themselves, breaking the second commandment and the first. Uh, and they bowed, bowed down to a cow, the image of a cow, and worshipped it. And so this is where we find ourselves in chapter 33. Moses is positioned as the link between God and his people. And we find him changed. We find him very different. I just want to, in this sermon, just point out five insights that I feel like we can have that this text gives us on Moses. Five insights, and then I want to finish with a, a meditation on the greater than Moses, on Jesus Christ. So the first, the first thing, number one, Moses hitches his fate to that of his people. We see this right off the bat in chapter 33. Um, if you read verse 1, God describes Israel, surprisingly, if you pay attention to the text, as the people, he's talking to Moses, those people that you brought out from Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Wait, who brought them up? Well, technically, okay, God, Moses did. But there's a huge omission here. What's God doing with this language? He's distancing himself from Israel. He's removing himself from Israel. It's like when I say um, one of my kids does something naughty, and I tell Robin, hey, your son just spit in Avery's face. The soft implication of my words is he's not my son. He's your son. You deal with it. That's what God's doing here. So, but Moses doesn't, in the, in the midst of this, he doesn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. I do not want to be connected to this sinful rabble. He doesn't say that. There's no disavowal. There's a distancing by God, but Moses sticks it with this people. He owns that, even though he's not guilty of it. He owns that. Um, he hitches his own destiny to that of his people. He identifies with them. What's God doing here in this text? He's giving us a picture of how we as a people, we as a sinful, and I always have the tendency to identify with Moses when I read this in my pride and presumption. No, no. I'm Israel. We are the people of God. You're Israel. What he's doing through Moses, he's giving us a picture of how we need a mediator. We need a man who obeys God to act as a go-between between us and God. We have to have an advocate for us because we bow down and worship that calf as soon as God seems to remove himself and what we see of him is gone and any security that we might have felt is gone, we will run to whatever we can. So we need a mediator and, and Moses is showing us that in pleading for this people and in hitching his own lot to that of the people. Um, he goes beyond a simple acceptance of this identification with the rebellious people. If you look at just before the passage that Scott read, if you look at the, the last part of chapter 32, he actually is willing to accept damnation if this people will just be saved and accepted and welcomed in by God. This sinful people, Moses hasn't done anything wrong, but he says, hey, if you need to take my name out of the book, if that's what it takes, just write theirs in. And Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 9. It, in verses 1 through 5, he actually says something very similar. He says, I would give my soul for my people, the Jews, if only it meant that they would have eyes open to the reality that Christ is Messiah. Are you there? How do we get there? How do we get to the place where we would be willing 
to be damned if only it meant that others could be saved. I just want to point out in this first point that Moses gets to that place by being with God. He, from the bush on, has seen the power of God, and he's been with God in the tent of meeting face to face. What we're seeing in Moses is is the beauty of the living God. We ought not to give Moses credit. God is rubbing off on Moses. This is what God is like. He hitches his fate to that of a sinful people. And in so doing, Moses is prefiguring Christ for us, as, as, as Scott prayed in his prayer. Christ on the cross. See, Moses offered to, be, uh, to take the hit, to lose his salvation, to be damned, but God, God said no. But Christ actually was damned for us on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Isaiah 53, he was crushed for our iniquities. He became sin, 2 Corinthians 5, so that we could be cleaned completely and made God's children. If you look at verse 3, God says, I'm not going to go up with you. For you're a stiff-necked people. So again, just another instance of how in the text we see God is joining Moses and the people together. You are a stiff-necked people. He throws Moses in there. Um, and Moses receives that identification. Um, but still God shows favor to Moses, but not to Christ. Christ was shamed, stripped down to nothing, crucified for us, and endured hell the punishment we deserve for us. He lost everything so that we could gain a restored relationship with the living God. Guys, I just want to say by way of application that this is what love looks like. It it looks like identifying identifying with someone else in in a worse state. And, of course, Moses gives us a picture of this, but consummately Christ does. And Christ in us, that we might make this a prayer, that we might be thankful and praise and let that praise become a supplication, that we might love in such a way that we could enter into people's lives, here, lunch, parish, throughout our lives, at work, outside of work, and really just link, our, link ourselves to them, not cut and run when things get bad, and do so in such a way that the light of Christ shines. I tell you, friends, that will change this area because that is the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us. So two, Moses, second insight about Moses, Moses separates from the people to bless them. So number two, Moses separates from the people to bless them. Verses 7 through 11. So in that weird passage that a lot of scholars look at that and they kind of go, what? They actually just kind of toss it aside and say, that's an, edit, that's an editor's thing. It just was put in there. Because all of a sudden, it's just this interruption in the text, seemingly. Um, well, actually, no, because... If you think about it, and there's so much more to say here, that's for a different sermon, but um, God's beginning to distance himself in the first three verses. The people get that, and so they just, they just take off. They divest themselves of all of their festal gather, of all their festal wear. And then this is a further instance of God just removing himself. The, the idea was for the tabernacle, which is talked about 
on the front side of this passage and on the next part of Exodus. But here in the middle, we have this breach that's been caused by the people's sin. And what happens? It's, the tabernacle is supposed to be in the middle of God's people. That's where God was. That's where he met with them. But now, out. He's moving out. And again, Moses is mediator. He's the one that go. He doesn't go out from the people because he hates them. He leaves the people, in a sense, isolating himself from the people in a different role, not in a buddy-buddy role, but in a special role to bring, in a sense, to bring God back, to bring the blessing of God and his very presence back to the people. He has to go out for a time. We see, ultimately, we see this in Jesus Christ. And there are, there are lessons in leadership to be gained from this. But ultimately, we see this consummate in Christ who left heaven and was crucified outside of the holy city, shamed, thought of as a sinner who became sin for us to bring us again just into the ultimate inner ring, into the ultimate privilege, divested himself of all the blessings of a son to make us sons and daughters, to give us the rights of the firstborn. And I loved singing that, I think we sang this morning, that bit about being firstborn, or maybe it was in a prayer, but we have the rights of the firstborn if we have trusted in Christ, not our own works, but in his. He was cast out to bring us in. So that's the second insight about Moses. He separates from the people in order to bless them. And the people feel that. They stand at their tents and watch him as he goes out to meet with God and as the fire and the cloud come down. Uh, and they, they stand out there in reverence and awe. Number three, Moses leverages his position to better theirs. Um, he presses his favor to gain favor with them. This is, this is the last few verses that Scott read, 12 through 16. So Moses leverages his position to better theirs. Um, okay, again, I want to I hone in on this. Look at the change in Moses we're beginning to see. Verse 12. He says, hey, you, sound, you say I found favor with you. If that's true, and I know your word is true, God, he presses in on that word God's given him. Let me remind you that you've made these promises, that this people, though wicked and stubborn, they're still your people whom you pledge yourself to. So he doesn't, if you notice in his since bartering, exchange, wrestling match with God, mediatorship, he doesn't press on the virtue of the people at all. That's lost. He doesn't say, hey, they're not so bad. He says, God, you gave your word and you're good, and your word's good. He presses on God's word to him and to the people. And this is exactly the way that we need to live as we live lives that are a prayer before God, to, to live in the reality and to pray this way for others in such a way that we are pressing into God's consummate word to us, which is Jesus Christ. I mean, all as we're told in 1 John, uh, John 1, Hebrews 1, other places in the New Testament, Jesus is God's word to us. What is the summation of the Old Testament message that God's trying to get across? You need a mediator. I provided one, my own son. He has kept the law completely for you. He has died the death that you ought to die. It's finished. Just come to him. Um, knowing that, regardless of how we feel, and pressing into God's favor for us and word given to us, which is his pledge, Jesus. I, uh, the hardest time in my life, we've lost I wasn't planning on saying, we've lost two children um, in utero. My wife's had to deliver both of them. That, those were terribly difficult times. Even harder, even harder was a time 
my first year in seminary, and the only thing that got me through that time was pressing into, not the way I was feeling, that I would have been lost, but pressing into God's word to me, which the kernel of that word was, all I could hang on to was, I am righteous with an alien righteousness, an outside righteousness that's not my own, but by faith I apprehend the perfection and the righteousness and the complete obedience and the sin-taking of Jesus Christ for me. And in Christ, I have a vicarious or an outside or an alien righteousness. I'm a sinner. I was feeling it so much. I was almost lost. But hanging on to that truth and, and living out of that reality, even contrary to the way I felt, it proved a rock for me. And it will for you. And as people see us live out the dry and the hard and the painful times in our lives out of his word and not out of our feeling, some will be drawn to the beauty and the reality and the truth of Christ and his gospel. So, so Moses leverages his favor with God to better the people's position, um, his favor with God. This is what every mediator or ambassador worth their weight in salt does. So you spend your capital to win favor for those who, whom you represent. Um, so there's this, to sort of shift from a very serious to an extremely lighthearted, um, which is kind of my, my jam. Um, <laughs> there's like no middle, no middle way with me. Uh, Robin and I were trying to make sense out of a very messy room, uh, our bedroom, a couple weeks ago, and cleaning it up. It was like a Saturday night or Friday night. And um, I'm a child of the 80s. Some of, most of you are ch- children of the 90s. Um, some of you are children of the 60s. God bless you. 50s, we want you here. May your tribe increase. Every church plant needs you. We need you. Stay. Stay. I was watching this 80s classic, Can't Buy Me Love. Anyone? No. So, so it was playing on the, uh, on the bed as, uh, as we were like hanging up clothes and rearranging boxes. And basically the story boils down to a really cool girl leveraging her social capital to make a really dorky nerd cool. Um, so she, uh, he's poor socially, and she gives him some of her social capital and, and raises him up, makes him cool, and it works. Um, it actually works. So uh, Keller talked about this with a biblical example um, at a recent breakfast here in town. I talked about how Esther in the book of Esther, Queen Esther does this too. She leverages the favor she has with the king to save the life of her people. And she puts her life on the line. Um, so that's, in a sense, what Moses is doing here as well. Um, in Can't Buy Me Love, she risked her social capital. Esther risked her life. Moses, in the same way, does that. But Jesus doesn't just risk his life. He comes to earth knowing he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his mission. That was his purpose. That was his purpose. Um, so, in Can't Buy Me Love, again, back to that ridiculous example, there's a scene where um, at the start of their relationship, this super cute, cool girl, she walks, she's like head cheerleader, of course, um, walks, um, she walks down the hall with this nerd for the first time. And he's loving it, popped collar, vest on, he looks really dorky still, actually, but hair gelled. And it actually works, like, the, the, uh, the, 
I was going to say thugs. The jocks are all looking at him, kind of growling, like, what the heck? How's he? And they would have pounded, they would have pounded this guy just up against the lockers. But she's with him. And basically, she's like, he's with me. He's cool. And that's a silly but great illustration of what Christ does with us. Because he didn't just die for us. The scriptures tell us he ever lives to make intercession for us. I didn't really realize this until I got to seminary. He's still a man. He will always have a body, a resurrected body. He will always remain. He still identifies with us. He will always not be the God-man, fully God and fully man. And in heaven, as a man, he represents men and women who trust in him. And he's constantly pointing to himself and his holes and his sacrifice in the midst of our sinful lives, we who trust in him, saying, hey, Kim, Russell, Jerome, they're with me. They're with me. They're cool. He doesn't argue, just like Moses here, he doesn't argue our own righteousness. That would be a totally lost cause. He argues, hey, God, I kept the law perfectly. I died for them. It's finished. Remember. And God remembers. So he leveraged himself to the ultimate degree for us. So we see how Moses' heart for the people has grown. Um, when, when God called him at the bush, Moses didn't really care about the people. He wasn't really thinking about them. He thought his life was over. You can tell that, by the way, kind of by the way he named his children. He thought, I'll be pushing sheep around until I die in the desert. Um, he lived out there for 40 years, and that's in the dryness where he encountered the living God, and we'll return to that. Um, but now, at this same mountain that God has promised to bring him back to, God has brought him back to this same mountain with the people whom God has brought out of Egypt, out of slavery. And um, we see, you know, on the backside in Exodus 3, Moses didn't, he wasn't thinking about the people. Now, he's doing everything he can to argue his position for their favor. Again, what has changed Moses? What can change us? A sustained encounter with the living God. God is like this. And we're going to see this next week. We're going to see this in brilliant display. And I can't wait to get there. This is what God is like. Moses is showing us in his pleadings that. And ultimately, the face of Christ. We see that. So Moses has seen God and been changed. He's been with God and he's been changed. And the result is that he's satisfied in God, and he just wants more. Friends, is this where you are? Is this where I am? Can I truly say, I just, my position, I just want more of you. I've seen you, and I've tasted, and you're good. All I want in life is just more of you, God. Can we make that a prayer? I'm not there. Could we make that our prayer? Because everything else can be taken away from us and nothing else satisfies. But we're constantly trying to make gods out of everything else because we are broken. Could we make this our prayer? Would you be enough? And once I get a taste of you, would I, would I just want more of you? For when confronted by God with God himself, Moses is no longer obsessed with himself. He's no longer obsessed with self as he was at the bush with his own inadequacy. So at the bush, God shows up 
And basically, it's just like two chapters of Moses making excuses. Go back to Egypt. I'm going to be with you. I'm revealing myself to you in a way I never have to any human being on the face of the planet. Oh, in all the glory. And all Moses can do is like look at himself, navel gaze, and go, I just can't do it. I stutter. I mean, me, 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 I, 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 And God's sitting here going, I am. I am. That's your answer. It's not about you. But here, look at the transformation. Same mountain, same man, but nowhere, nowhere in sight is that response. What is Moses saying by contrast? You. I want you. I just need more of you, God. How do we get to this place of what Keller calls, there's Keller, see? Of what Keller calls the blessing, or the freedom, rather, He's made his sermon into a little book. It's a great book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. How do we get to the place where Moses is and that Keller writes about and that C.S. Lewis, there's Lewis. I can never not talk about Keller or Lewis. He kind of describes humility. I think I was talking about this with Austin a couple weeks ago, but he says it's not so much thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking about yourself less. How do I get to that place where I'm just free, and, and I don't think about me. I'm not obsessed with me, because guess what? That doesn't just happen. Uh, that, uh, that space has to be filled with something. It will only be filled and satisfied with God. If he becomes our obsession and our focus, I become fulfilled and even more important and worthwhile and eternal and glorious and weighty and real, but I'm not thinking about myself nearly as much. And in our culture, in America, our answer to everything is just focus on me more. Sit on the couch and talk. That's not the answer. That's one of the reasons we, no model is perfect for a church, except for the model that Scripture gives us, and we're always trying to get closer to it. But I think that's one reason that the parish model, and again, we have things to learn within that, but it's so important and and so helpful because it institutionalizes the importance of just weekly, at least, just getting outside of ourselves and trying to get into somebody else's life and get, actually get to know them and to care about them and forgetting to, to have a real, a real substantial conversation. There's a sense in which you just have to do that every time you talk to someone. Forget about me. How are you doing? To be like that all the time and to be like that with a living God, it will trickle down to other people. To be obsessed with God and focused on, Lord, I don't care about me. Forget about the fact that I can't talk. You. Let's talk about you. I want to see you. I have to see you. Show me your glory. I mean, Moses is, he's a man obsessed. He has to see God, and we're going to look at that next week. How do we get there? Sustained encounter with the living God through his word, by prayer, through his spirit, with other people focused on them, loving them with the love of Christ, sharing that love together, and inviting the lost in. And I just want to say, until before jumping to five, again, I said it a few times, but this mountain is variously called two names. Sinai, we know it is Sinai, but actually in this text it says the other name, Horeb. And that's the name that's used in Exodus 3. Moses is in a dry place. He's at the end of his life, so he thinks. We all know he lived till 120. We all know he had a huge third chapter. 40, he gets kicked out of Egypt. 
as the prince of Egypt. At 80, he's pushing sheep around, thinking, I mean, basically a garbage collector. You're like, my life's over. I'm done. And God meets him in that dryness on Horeb, which means, in Hebrew, dryness. God, if you are in a dry place, if you are on the mountain, if you are in a desert, this is a wonderful place to press into, to meet the living God. He loves to meet us in the dryness, because you know why? He'll meet us anywhere, but oftentimes we won't meet with him. The dryness strips all of the illusion away, doesn't it? To help us to see what's truly worthwhile, which is God himself. Can I just encourage you to press into that? I'm reading a book right now called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. Okay, that seems like an oxymoron. But that's the kernel of this truth here. If we could just see that the fierce landscapes that God leads us into are often his megaphone, to steal another phrase from Lewis, to rouse us, to help us to see what truly is worthwhile. Press into that. Number five. Fifth insight about Moses, he refuses to be satisfied with God's blessings, and he wants God himself. Sort of a corollary to to last point. Basically, if we can get one thing from the text, here's what Moses is doing. He's mediating for the people. He gets God to the place where God says, fine, um, I'll send an angel with you. And Moses is like, not a chance. You know what he says? He says, I'll send an angel with you, but and what? I'll send an angel with you to go before you, clear the path, vanquish your enemies, take you into the promised land, land of milk and honey, out of the iron furnace, all of my promises, they're all yours. You know, there's that bit in Napoleon Dynamite where he makes that, his friend makes that speech, Pedro, and he's like, tell them all your wildest dreams will come true. And uh, that's his speech. He's like, all of your wildest dreams will come true if you vote for me as president, you know? And uh, that's essentially what God is saying here. I just compared God to Pedro. That's right. (laughs) Pedro and Can't Buy Me Love. Basically, God is saying, look, Moses, people, all of your wildest dreams will come true. Promised land. Promised land. Milk and honey flowing out of the rock. It's it's amazing. No enemies. All the money in the bank that you could ever want. All, All that stuff that causes you consternation taken out of your life. Your enemies anguished. Everyone loves you. You're the popular guy. Your family taking care of health, wealth, everything. What does Moses say? It's astonishing. No deal. No way. No. At the bush, Moses thought he was his impediment, speech impediment, whatever. Here, we find a completely different person. Here, he says literally, what makes us your people? You. You, everything in the world minus God is nothing. Could we get to that place? Could we make that a prayer where we actually believe? You promised me everything, God, everything, but not you. No deal. Take it all away, but remain with me. Keep not thy Holy Spirit from me. Give me all of yourself. I got to see your glory. I got to see what you're really like. Show me yourself. Pledge yourself to me. He has. He has in Christ. Friends, don't you see, no matter what desert you're in, we have everything we need.
as Moses finishing up the text, finishing up the sermon, as he says at the end of this text, it, all that I just talked about comes to a crescendo when he says what? This little phrase, it's crystallized. Show me your glory. I got to see you. What it means is I want to see who you really are. Don't leave anything back. Now, the text kind of tells us in a sense, let me exegete that for you. Not a good idea. No man can see me and live. We are so, how does God first describe himself as he responds to Moses? He says, yes, I will, but I'll make my goodness pass before you. That's what God says. So God chooses in the first line of his description to describe himself as I am good. I am goodness itself. All good, all beauty, all truth, it comes from me. I'm the source. What does that say about me and you that if we stood before that, we would die? I can't handle goodness undiluted because I am evil. Jesus' words, not mine. Take it up with him. I'm evil. How can you who are evil give good gifts? Jesus. That's why he came. If we weren't, if there were another way, he wouldn't have come. Believe me. But he had to, to save us because we are evil through and through. So God says, okay, look, I'm going to show you my glory. But basically, it's like Moses says, look, I want to look at the sun in the desert at noon. No clouds, no glasses. Can I? And God says, put these on. And he gives him a pair of Ray-Bans. What is with my illustrations this morning? And I want to say this. This is the first and last time this will ever be said in church. Jesus is our pair of Ray-Bans. He is. Because Jesus means we can actually see God. Jesus means we can actually get what Moses was asking for. Only Jesus, friends, shows us what God is really like. Humble, full of mercy, waiting to shower us with undeserved favor, willing to take the hit for us, showing off ultimate power. How? By dying on a cross in a display of ultimate weakness. Don't ever forget what is God like. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Do you want to see God? Put on your glasses. Jesus Christ, he shows us what God is like. Okay, I'm going to skip that, and I'm just going to end the sermon. Not with my words, but with God's. These verses, they give us the greater than Moses, who actually died so that we could live. He went to hell so we could be lifted up to heaven. He was rejected so we could be accepted by the Father in love. In seeing Christ, we see what God is truly like. In seeing the face of Jesus, we see the heart of God the Father. In seeing Jesus, we see God's full, not, un, not diluted, his full glory. Let these passages, close your eyes if you, if you want to, but just let these passages wash over you and into you. This, these are all about our Savior, Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, let, line, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus he has made him known. The literal word in the Greek there is he has exegeted God. You want to know, you want to have an exegesis, an unveiling, a full revelation? 
in an understandable way of who the Father is? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the Word. What's God like? Here's the Word. Jesus. Colossians 1. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, through Moses and others. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is, here it is, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What is God like? Jesus. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins. This verse has rocked my world the past two weeks. After making purification for sins, he finished the work. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Finished. How much work do you have to do to get right with God, to be fully in God, fully pleasing in God's sight? Nothing. It's finished. He's seated and he's still making intercession for you. And finally, 1 John 1, the way that John, the beloved apostle, who put his head on Jesus' chest. Did he know Jesus? Oh, yeah. Here's what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, why? So that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father, you are our Father because of one person, Jesus Christ. Thank you that Moses shows us in shadows what Christ has done for us, what your heart is like, how you have hitched yourself, ineluctably drawn us, and unbreakably hitched yourself to us and our position. You've been cursed because that's what we deserved. And you've given us your blessing. We bless you. Holy Spirit, as Scott prayed at the beginning of my talk, we welcome you to this place. Would you spotlight Jesus Christ for us and put him in our hearts by faith? If we don't have faith, give us the faith to believe. Help us to ask the right questions of doubt, Lord. Meet us where we are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.